Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Reddy, but my friends call me Spanners. So let's be friends. Today, we're continuing our series of off-season specialist shows by putting ourselves in the driver's seat. We're going to explore the skills required to become the fleshy interface between the seat and the steering wheel. And we can do stuff like this because no one's stopping us because we're an independent, Patreon-supported podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Now, uh, there's a driver skills show. So, obviously, the first person I'm introducing is Matt. Two rumpets. Hey, Matt. 99% of your problem is the nut behind the wheel. I, I do think that a lot of time that fleshy bit is the weak link. It must be so frustrating for engineers. And you think back to Williams with Sorokin and Stroll. And you just go, I think whatever they were doing at that time, nothing was going to get that car into Q2. Yeah, well, it's it, it is the it is the ultimate battle between the driver in the car and the engineers who think they know what the car should be doing at every second. And uh, yeah, I guess we're going to hear from the other side today. Yes, from the driver side of that argument, we have race car driver man and test driver Phil Bradley. Phil, I was going to say Phil Bradpot because that's your new YouTube channel with your streaming, but it's Phil Bradpot. Hey, Phil. No, Brad Philpot. What's going on? <laughs> you Spanners, I'm disappointed you didn't say all of that in Spanish, first of all, because I've become accustomed to listening to you recite perfect um, Spanish. Um, but I'm also here to agree that I think the driver, the fleshy bit, is normally the problem, actually. Mm, so apologies. Brad Philpot, someone I have known for the last eight years, has recently launched an iRacing channel where you are racing as a rookie called Phil Bradpot doing it all from the beginning, basically with the Smurf account. And uh, and that fooled me. It massively fooled me. So I apologize for that. And yes, you can listen to Mist Apex Espanol, which is the pilot episode of Mist Apex content in Spanish. And uh, so we'll include a link to that. And I'd be very, very curious to hear from any Spanish speakers 
to see if that's something you would like us to continue doing. So, Brad, obviously you're our driver expert. I'm going to go into some depth towards the end of the show because we're going to meet the panel and we've not done a meet the panel with you over the winter. But why should why should anyone listen to you talking about driving, Brad? Uh, this is the bit where I get to tell you some credentials. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Lay it all out. Okay, people should listen to me uh, primarily not not because of all the racing that I've done, which I'll maybe touch upon, but because I really care and have always really cared about why drivers do certain things and how they can be better. It's why I've um, spent most of my adult life uh, as a driver coach or racing instructor teaching people how to go faster and and how not just how to go fast but why you do certain things and really having to delve deep into the psyche of drivers of all abilities and figure out why people do certain things and how you can make sure that you do it the best possible way and explain that to people to hopefully make it stick in their minds and and help them continue getting quicker which is very handy because you're also promoting a new coaching service, which we'll definitely plug. But I've had a lot of coaching from you and I've had it on the sim, uh, but I've also had it most usefully when you were in my ear on a radio at the side of a go-kart track. And it's incredible how much you can just shave off seconds off a lap time of an ordinary person like me going around because you were literally going well hang on why aren't you using all the track i'm like oh i am i'm using all the track and you're like no you're a meter away from where the actual apex point is yeah so obviously it's it's easier when there's low-hanging fruit like that (laughs) (laughs) it's the the slower or the less experienced the driver obviously the much much easier this task becomes and and it becomes a lot more nuanced and complicated and complex when you're talking about a driver who's already very very good um but but yeah it's you can really help people sometimes just even with a very good driver having an outside perspective and to not not have quite as much skin in the game as the driver themselves and have the reflective overview of the situation can help you or alternatively you could be sat next to someone who's making obvious mistakes that you can just tell them immediately and fix it or even grab the steering wheel which which i've had to do Uh, on literally thousands of occasions over the years to to simply put the car where it needs to go because sometimes there's no amount of saying all the way to the left all the way to the left no further to the left (laughs) no amount of that that can do it and if you just grab the wheel and put the car there and go all the way here you'll get a oh i didn't know you meant all the way to the left i I want to defend myself slightly because that particular uh, apex i was talking about you wanted me to be basically all the way on the grass with just my outside wheels remaining and the rest of the car was on the curb and then a little bit of grass. And I always say to you, like, Brad, I can't go any further right. That's the grass. And you just went, yeah, but that's your inside wheels. It doesn't matter. And that, that even like that basic driving concept just shocked me. And from then on, I was like, oh, yeah, OK. If I'm in a corner and I'm tight right hand lock, only my left wheels matter. Yep, precisely. I'm mm. glad that stuck with you. Yeah. I'm really glad that's the thing that that you've remembered because that was a few years ago now. It was. But... You you said to me, you said, it doesn't matter, it could be ice. That's what you said to me. And I went, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, mm. that's a, a relatively basic driving concept, but yeah, you, your yeah. outside wheels in a particular corner are doing the vast majority of the work. So you can get away with a bit of grass or a lot of grass. It might be a problem for you to initially not realize how little someone like me or someone like matt who's come into racing post 50 years old uh, just how little we know 
Yeah, so generally people who are motorsport fans, they'll have an idea because you've seen it. You've, yeah. Even if you've not experienced it yourselves, you've heard things spoken about and you've watched drivers do things on screen. And I'm often surprised and, and really delighted when I hear people ask what on the face of it to me or to to a, another race driver or instructor is something that we just assumed everyone knew and it makes you realize oh okay people are um, taking part in this in the sport or, you know in terms of spectating on the sport watching formula one or motorsport in general and just are completely unaware of why certain things are done or even that they're happening they might just be happening and it's not because people aren't aware of it they don't see it happening on the screen whereas as a driver you know exactly what the driver on the screen is thinking and why, why they're making certain decisions so i'm sure some of the listener questions we've got today are along that kind of um theme and hopefully no one's ever ashamed or embarrassed to ask these questions because there are many people who we're in the same boat who also didn't know. And oh. I love I love explaining this stuff. Oh, because oh, Matt, we're safe. Yeah, uh, Brad, oh, Alex completely. and Kyle have never made us feel stupid for our lack of racing ability, have they? Never, never at all. <laughs> uh, but I, I did, before we get started, started, if I could ask Brad a brief question, because as a musician, I have taught lots of people, including Brad, I've taught Brad, Briefly. It didn't go very well, Matt, did it? No, that was, that was my fault. That wasn't the teacher's fault. It was my lack of ability. <laughs> wait, wait. It was what only you, one lesson. What were you teaching Brad? Trumpet? Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, but, but my wife has given Brad a singing lesson and she said, you're very good, Brad. Like she said, like you could genuinely be a proper, proper singer. That's very kind of her. Mm. I, won't, I won't annoy the listeners with um, <laughs> a rendition. With singing today. No, okay, okay. Go on, Matt. Sorry, continue. I was very curious in all your experience teaching, sort of like what the the, the thing where the, the quickest, biggest gains can be made for people. Yeah, there's there's really so many. And I, I've been I've instructed people in race cars since 2005. So I worked out a few days ago that and this does sound ridiculous, but when you do the maths, I guarantee this is accurate. I've done something like well over half a million laps in the passenger seat and then maybe closer to a million and everyone is really different but you're right there are some general trends and if we're talking about people who are completely new to it so people who have never driven a, a race car or a cart or done any sim racing those people will tend to do some uh, common things the same hold the wheel in the wrong position initially um, we don't tend to let them get away with that for very long that tends to be like the first thing that you make people do correctly but it's amazing how not obvious it is for a normal non-race driver person that holding the steering wheel in the correct place is really important knowing which way the wheels are pointed is really important because they've probably driven on the road for 20 or 30 years yeah. and never once had any real accurate idea of where the wheels are pointed they just shuffle the wheel around and feed it and the car goes roughly where they want it to go but they never have a kind of to the to the nearest degree <laughs> yeah. accuracy idea of where the wheels are pointed which you definitely need when you're driving on track i was going to ask if people end up feeding the wheel instead of like snapping the steering with with the hands gripped in place yeah they do but mm. not for very long if they're sat next to me because i won't stop banging on about it until they do it because it's actually quite funny initially if you're on a track day say someone's first track day in their road car they might have a little hot hatch or a, a sports car that they're taking on track for the first time they think it's negotiable. And yeah, I might listen to him. It'll probably shut up about it in a minute, but it's not. It is literally the number one most important thing when you're starting out. And I, I always 
um, liken it to if they were on a tennis lesson and they held the racket somewhere else other than the handle, <laughs> they could they could hit the ball yeah. for sure, just like they can drive their car around the track. But they're always going to be way worse than someone who holds it in the right place. So, um, yeah. So that's that's the number one thing. But there are so many things in terms of just all of the technique, positioning the car in the wrong place, braking too gently. Um, having no idea what gears are for, which is always a surprise. Um, it, and again, a delight because it's something that's really enjoyable to explain to people why you change gear and, and why you change at a certain point. Um, but yeah, I can go into any one of these things and probably spend 20 minutes talking about it. Well, them. my favourite thing that you've ever told me about instructing is that you have a, a button on the instructor side, a button, a pedal, that I would have thought you would be able to brake for them, but in fact you have a pedal that releases their brake. So depending on where you're instructing, yeah, yeah the, the racing school or driving experience center that I worked at for the majority of my, or certainly the first 12 years of my instructing life, um, we were very fortunate to have a, a, an instantaneous kill switch as well as a brake pedal and a directly connected brake release pedal, which was just as important. So yeah, um, bringing people off the brakes in various situations, but generally if they're locked up and heading towards something solid, ah, you, want, you want to be able yeah. to release the brakes because there's otherwise it doesn't matter what else you do it doesn't matter where they point the steering wheel if the front wheels are locked up they're going to keep going straight on until they hit something yes uh, but obviously like, a lot of people will hit the brakes a lot earlier than they're supposed to and then you can nag them and say no 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 keep going full pelt towards the corner i had a little bit of an opposite thing the other day me and the me and my son went uh, karting and uh, we don't need to talk about the timetable yeah we don't we don't need no one needs to know the lap times from that session but on the way back, I, I was approaching a roundabout and I suddenly realised that I had waited until visually I had hit a, a racing breaking point. So this, this is like on the A130 up, up towards the A12. I hit the joining roundabout and I, when I hit the brakes, I suddenly realised, oh, I've left myself only the amount of room to get to the apex, which doesn't exist. And then there's that moment where I'm like, oh man, I really need to tighten up. I need to watch my steering. I need to make sure I don't lock up the, the brakes. Obviously, you've got ABS. But um, that, that switch backwards from a track day is actually quite difficult. Yeah, uh, I would I would always recommend people to not necessarily listen to it or remember everything they've done on their track day on the it way home. The there road. are lots of things which are transferable. There's ah. lots of skills which which is really useful to have on the road. Certainly when things start to go wrong or when, when you find yourself in a situation on the road where the limit is a lot lower than it normally would be, you know, adverse conditions, rain, snow, ice, whatever. It's, it is good to have a subconscious correct reaction to certain things a car will do. Um, and so, so yeah, I think it's as long as you know you're not racing when you're on the road, then um, you're giving yourself uh, having additional skills. Track skills is going to give you a wider safety window on the road too. Well, I made the roundabout and successfully joined the A12 without killing me and my son. So uh, we're gonna we've got some F1 uh, type driving technique things to go into. First, we have some listener questions, Brad. Which one of the listener questions caught your eye? Um, so I'm a bit biased here, um, but I think we should go for this one so we definitely don't miss it out. Because sure. Adam Snell is my friend, and oh. I saw he'd sent a question in, and he'll be absolutely gutted if I don't respond to that one. And I haven't responded privately, so uh, I've okay. saved the answer nice. for the show. Uh, hello, Adam. So, uh, so Adam was asking uh, what the difference between uh, dirty air and a slipstream oh, was. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, because I honestly think that a lot of times the commentary doesn't quite 
get this because it's going, oh, brilliant, he's got the toe, he's right behind him, and they don't really sort of explain why it's good sometimes and, and bad other times. So it's the different. Why, why is a toe good, but then being so close in dirty air is bad? And in that case, if one's bad and one's good, do they cancel each other out? So essentially, um, dirty air and a slipstream are both different ways of talking about the hole in the air punched by the car in front. Um, and in some situations, it's a bad thing to have that hole punched in the air. For example, you're in a downforce dependent racing car following closely behind another car in a corner where you want maximum downforce. That hole in the air in front of you is a negative because it's taking away some of your downforce. If the car in front of you is pushing the air away from you, effectively making a bit of a vacuum and the air's hitting, this is, I'm just pulling these figures um, out of thin air, but the air hits their front wing at 100 miles per hour but then it only hits your front wing at, say, 70 miles per hour because they've pushed some of the air out of the way. You're not getting the benefit of the full 100 miles per hour worth of downforce, um, which would be from the air flowing over your downforce generating surfaces. So in that case, we call it dirty air because it's bad, it's dirty, we don't like it. But that exact same hole that's punched by that exact same car on the following straight suddenly turns into a good thing because that hole in the air is reducing the drag. You don't need any downforce on the straight and therefore helps you close up to them and it becomes a slipstream. So it's ways of referring to the same hole in the air, but at different times and, and for different reasons. And that dirty air becomes much less of a problem and much less of something you'd talk about in a non-downforce reliant racing series, something like a, a touring car series or um, a, a championship or, or karting, for example, where there's really no downforce acting at all on, on your vehicle. So the hole punched in the air is just always a slipstream. And then the negative thing becomes they're kind of just in the way a bit and you can't necessarily see your turning point, breaking point, apex as clearly. That's then the only negative. Hopefully that was a, a simple enough way of putting it. So basically, to put it uh, in, in, in TLDR type terms, <laughs> terms, if you're on a straight, it's a slipstream. If you're in a braking zone or a corner, it's dirty air. Mm. Yeah. So in F1, exactly. it's, a, it's a real issue because no matter how much you, you close up, and that issue is kind of taken away a little bit because you get DRS if you're within a second anyway, you almost always foul in the corners in Formula One. So unless it's a dead stop mechanical 90 degree turn, you, it's, it's never good to be in that slipstream. And F1 has suffered from that so much. And particularly since 2017, where they decided, right, no, no, we need to bolt more aero down because we need to be faster than, than Hercules here. And so, you know, from that point on, the, the passing became nearly impossible. Yet F1 is just so stubborn about reducing that aero wash they sort of they pay lip service to it but it never sort of happens i think you've got the problem that f1 wants two different things you want exciting racing but they also still want to be the fastest cars or or as fast as possible within reason around a circuit and you can't be that unless you've got significant downforce because a different series that maybe doesn't care as much about overtaking will just have more downforce than you. And even with significantly less powerful engines, we'll just still be quicker around the track than you. So I think it's this difficult balancing act. Now Formula One is at the speed it is. It, they don't want to go backwards in terms of lap time, but they still want good racing. And, and so you have things bolted on like DRS to try and give us both. And then potentially you could argue it, it's then artificial overtaking <laughs> although we could argue all day long about every every single element of formula one yeah. is artificial um so everything yeah. about the prototype metal incredible machines 
is artificial. But if I can divert away from driver skills into F1 design philosophy for a bit, Matt, the the, sure. the, the biggest challenge to F1 in, say, 2014 was F2 or GP2 at the time. So great, just make GP2 slower. Like there's no other series who's really threatening F1 in an ultimate lap time around Circuit of the Americas. Like off the top of your head, like IndyCar. I know IndyCar don't have to do track limits, but aren't they like 20 seconds down? So yeah. they could afford to lose a little bit. If we're going to go down the order, it's Formula One has the most downforce. Then I believe it's Super Formula has the second most downforce. And then I believe it is what is now F2, but back then was GP2, as you point out. And then I think we actually do get to IndyCar. IndyCar doesn't have a ton of downforce for the amount of power they have. And uh, that is a choice they've made. They still have enough downforce that you get toes and dirty air is a problem. It's just much less of a problem for the driver. Yeah. Sorry, just, 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 that's my little bugbear that I keep, as an F1 fan, just keep, you know, banging my head against a brick wall. We constantly talk about being able to, to follow. And this is the core issue that Adam is hitting upon here, which is that you can't really have that high downforce without creating the dirty air, or, ca- or can you? Is there a magic solution where you have both? It's certainly what, what they've been trying to do, isn't it, with the underfloor yeah. downforce, which then brings its own problems, but Matt can probably go into that better than I can. So they're reducing outwash, isn't it? But then the teams, we know for a fact, I don't think this is controversial, that teams will deliberately try and make their outwash so that it creates dirty air for the cars behind. And I'm not sure that's something that everyone's fully aware of, but te- you know, cars do that deliberately. Teams want to create a dirty air for the car behind. Well, Following that philosophy makes the car faster. The end result of doing what they're doing, what you see with them shaping the outwash to clean the front wheels and to make less of the wake ingested and dirty further down the car, winds up putting more turbulence behind the car. The new set of aero regulations we went to was meant to solve that. And I think if you look at the racing we had, you would see that they'd actually done a pretty good job But remember last year, in addition to the loopholes the teams were finding, we raised the the diffuser throat and we raised the floor edges. And that's had a very negative effect on the car's ability to follow and race like they did the first year of these regulations. So now we're talking about active aero and all sorts of other stuff that might make the racing better without sacrificing the having the fastest lap time. Okay, so uh, you know you know me. I, I'm not necessarily a problem solver. The first thing I want to do is complain about a problem. So yeah. now I've done that. I've complained about the problem. I've established blame. It's F1's fault. Everyone's stupid but us. So now, some of the reality of, of dealing with this, Brad. So uh, whilst you've not raced high downforce single-seaters, you have tested F3 cars, interestingly, which is fun. Yeah, I have. I've raced kind of moderate downforce single-seater. So uh, back in 2006, um, I did a very small amount of uh, a championship that was at the time called Formula Palmer Audi, which was not that far off Formula 3. It was it looked like a like you'd expect a single-seater to look. You know, it looked like a, a Formula 1 car shape with wings and stuff, but the downforce wasn't amazing. But yeah, the, the Formula 3 car had... Certainly very noticeable downforce. Was it enough in the the Palmer Audi? Was it enough that 
the characteristics of the car would change when you were following a car. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And certainly yeah, through, through high yeah. speed corners, through and the highest speed corners. And certainly sure. like in the sim world, if you go into F4, F3, uh, you will definitely notice these changes. So you're behind a car, you're getting an advantage down the straight because it's breaking the air for you. Therefore, you're going through thinner air and you can go faster. You get nice and close, but then you go into a high speed corner. What's the first thing you notice as a driver? Uh, you generally notice the front end washing out. So effectively, it, you just feel like you've got less grip. Um, and the first thing mm. you notice is, is less front grip. Um, and you'll generally feel like you're running wider than you intend. If you try and go into the corner at the same speed as you would without the right. dirtier, with no car in front of you, you're, you're going to wash wide, basically. So you'll see this in Formula One. Cars following will deliberately take uh, a less than ideal geometric line to because it's actually less of a disadvantage to take slightly the wrong line if you can maintain um, the downforce on, on your aero surfaces, on the front wing predominantly. So cars will go slightly wider than the car they're following to try and have less dirty air. Um, and so, yeah, so you notice that. It's almost like there's, you have to visualize when you're racing in a downforce dependent car, you have to visualize there's like a lane behind the car ahead of you, which has a, a certain percentage less grip. And it's almost like that car is dropping water. It's not as bad as that, but that's you can visualize it like that. It's like there's, 10 to 15 to 20% less grip or whatever it happens to be. But if you go either side of that, you'll have roughly the same grip, discounting things like marbles and less rubber on that line. Did you find that it also affected your braking, uh, like into heavy braking zones if you were directly behind a car? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're not necessarily going to brake at the predictable place that you want them to brake. In general, a professional is going to brake roughly in, in a, within a certain range of where you expect them to. But there could be any number of reasons why they don't. And so if you're giving yourself absolutely no margin for error, then you could just pile into the back of them, as I'm sure we all have done on sim racing. I did two nights ago, absolutely wipe myself out into the back Everyone of a slower car because I expected them to break. Mm. You can see that on my, uh, I think I posted it on Twitter. Um, I expected them to break much later. They didn't. And um, so that's one reason. But yes, you're right. In terms of the dirty air, just as with at the cornering, there's less downforce. You also rely on downforce to be able to brake as hard as possible because when you're traveling quickly through the air and you've got lots of downforce pressing you into the track, you can get away with a higher amount of initial brake pressure. So if that downforce isn't the same as you're expecting, you're going to lock the front brakes if you hit the pedal with the same force. So yeah, it does affect you. And obviously the higher up the racing chain you go, the more downforce there is, the more you have to take that into account. So I've felt that effect on iRacing, the sim we do in the F3 championship that we were, were running at the time where uh, one of the patrons went in front of me in the braking zone so they just took up the normal line and they were fairly far ahead. So it wasn't a chop, but it was enough to affect the downforce. And I hit the brakes exactly the same as normal, ended up locking up and then just punting them off track. So there's a couple of things there, which is A, as the organizer, I always feel terrible when I completely wreck someone's race. But the second thing is that it's quite incredible that the sim is able to kind of recreate that effect. Uh, is it generally regarded that iRacing or, or sim racing in general can recreate the adjustments you have to make as a driver yeah i don't know um exactly how they do it i'm not a game developer I, it's been very good for a very uh, a long time it's been very good since since i remember playing at r factor one and stuff it's the the way it replicates um the loss of downforce from following other cars or a wind direction change for example which mm. is a, a big thing in iRacing. racing um it's it's been very accurate for a very long time so maybe for some reason it's just quite a simple 
thing to put in as part of the code. But yeah, I'd certainly say I approach that in exactly the same way as I would in real life. So that's something, what I love from these chats is then when we're watching F1, we're appreciating a little bit of the the challenge that the drivers are having to go through. So we we all, I think, instinctively, more fans will understand the the downforce from the turn than they will that braking issue. So not only are they looking for a bit of clean air and will have to brake early to compensate for the lack of grip, but they're also having to really affect their braking. So we're painting this picture where, you know, no wonder, no wonder there's so few non-DRS overtakes in F1 if you just can't follow enough to outperform the driver in front. So the, the defending driver has a massive advantage. Yes, although one thing I would say on that is if you are planning to overtake the car in front, you're probably not braking directly behind them um, because you're not going to overtake someone by driving through them. So if you're <laughs> trying to outbrake someone, you'll generally be one lane to the side. So you should have pretty much full downforce oh, at that I point. So, yeah. so you could then break that. Right, but you, so, can't, you can't stay close, though, is probably the problem. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's more of a challenge if you're not planning to overtake, but you just want to stay close because you're overtaking in the next braking zone, for example. That's the challenge, yeah, staying closer than there. And one thing, just whilst we're talking about Formula One or downforce-dependent braking, um, one thing that people might not realise, which whilst we're on this topic, I'll just say it and then we never have to cover it again, is is the way you brake in a downforce-dependent car is not just pushing the brakes really hard and keeping them on until the car's slowed down. There's a very deliberate, although subconscious, um, for a professional trace, a very deliberate shape to the pressure that you put into the pedal. Because as I explained a couple of minutes ago, you've got more potential to press the pedal harder when you've got lots of downforce on the car. And that means when you're traveling quickly. But obviously, the moment you start braking, that level of downforce is changing. It's going down. It's like the graph of your your speed is dropping away and the downforce is also dropping away. So you can't keep the same pressure on the pedal all the way through the braking zone. Or it will just lock. Yeah, if you, if you applied the same pressure all the way through the braking zone, first of all, you'd stop too soon if you could keep that pressure on. But you can't because you don't have as much grip the slower the car goes. And so you have to brake hard and then release the pedal immediately. It's your your foot's pressure on the pedal is effectively mirroring the change in speed. And so and, as the car's slowing yeah. down, you're aware of that and you're bleeding off the pressure. And is there any change in, in what they're feeling through the brake pedal? So this is another one of the things that you know I've learned the most from you in karting is, is getting to the point where the brake pressure grips the tyre enough to overcome its traction on the ground. Therefore, you lock up and you're skidding along like you're rubbing a, a, an eraser along the track. You want to be just at that point, but just before it. So just before the lock point and then feeling that out in the car. And and I think that's that's a skill that maybe a lot of race fans just don't realise is that the driver is constantly feeling for that point. So there's no ABS, there's no anti-lock systems on formula one cars or, or go-karts so you know that, that's a very specific skill when you think that when you feel like you've locked it can you can you rescue that quickly uh, or and can you feel when you're a long way from the lock point or is it just a case of i just hit that pedal until i feel the lock and you're, i'm kind of you're, you're living on the edge of it yeah so let's tie this into one of the questions because tim mcgrath are uh... Are there any driving skills that translate from day-to-day road driving to racing or vice versa? And this is probably one of the main ones, if you're driving a car without ABS, is the caveat. Um, And so to answer your question, you're generally not feeling, unless you've got ABS, the pedal change very much as you approach the lock point. What you tend to feel, the thing certainly that I would be aware of as as the tires begin to lock, 
is the st- change in the steering feel. First of all, actually, the change in the deceleration. So you're feeling that all the way through your body, probably your inner ear. Um, so you're decelerating at a certain rate. And when the tires lock, or even if one of them locks, you stop decelerating quite at that rate. So you sense that in general, but through your contact with the car, through your your hands and your feet, the thing you should notice straight away is the steering wheel will tend to go, uh, it'll suddenly just feel a little bit light. It goes from feeling like it's got some weight, although I appreciate we're driving in a straight line here, but generally it's going to be locking up as you approach the phase where you're starting to turn in. If it suddenly goes light, jerks briefly in your hands that that's the sensation of a wheel locking um and once you realize that's happening there is something you can do you generally you'd hope a professional is doing this completely subconsciously again but you'd release the brake pressure you know the you try and remove the thing remove the input which is causing the problem this is the same in a lot of track driving um and this is a way i explain it to lots of people when something's going wrong or if they haven't saved something and they want to save it next time is the thing the way to fix a certain problem is generally to remove the problem remove the thing causing the problem at this point it's too much brake pressure is causing the problem so releasing the brakes allows the tire to unlock the wheel will rotate again and the moment the wheel's rotating you've got your steering back or the ability to decelerate again and that does transfer to road driving because sometimes you may be driving a car that doesn't have abs maybe it's an older car um maybe it's just a cheaper car sometimes i think there are still cars you can buy that don't have abs um and so that's a very good thing cadence braking is the um, technical term and that just basically means sensing that you've locked up a wheel releasing the brakes and then reapplying the brakes to continue your deceleration so um so yeah, hopefully that makes sense yeah it does so when you mentioned cadence braking i remember um specifically seeing i think it was botas lock up and then how does that work exactly if you're in a situation where you need to use it how do you do that you simply come off the brakes and reapply it's as simple as that you and you try and do it um in the same way that an abs system would which is with the shortest intervals between your release and reapplication as possible ideally you come off and you reapply and it doesn't lock up again in which case that's that's fine you've probably you're probably going to stay on the track but if you've really misjudged it or something has caused you to lock up in a big way say the situation has changed someone has pulled in front of you and it's forcing you to stop much earlier than you expect maybe there's oil or water or something down or we hit the marbles and so the amount of braking that you require the amount of deceleration is vastly different to what's achievable with the grip level at your disposal in that case you might end up having to do it a lot of times in that one braking zone which would be brake release brake release brake release and then you know trying to trying to cut down the the frequency so it's it's just like an abs system which is doing it faster than a human could human bs no wait well, no I was going to say, when you said someone pulled in front of you, it totally made me think of Ricardo and Verstappen in Baku, where Verstappen pulled in front of Ricardo and smash-a-rooneyed him. Yeah. And in, in that situation, there was no time for him to do cadence braking. It was just brake as hard as you can. And, you know, the situation, it was clear that he was about to hit the car in front. So um, no amount of cadence braking was stopping and and... Uh, so where else does your natural inquisitiveness lead us in the listener questions, Brad? I, I actually really like all of these questions. Brilliant. And I just want to say one thing. For anyone who's sent a question that we don't get to, feel free to just direct message me on Twitter or wherever because I'm a massive geek and I actually just really love <laughs> answering this stuff. Um, and I'm sure we can't get to all of them. 
Um, we've got a couple. We've got one from John M about setups. I don't know whether you want to oh, get into. Yeah, uh, we can do a little bit because th- that comes up so much as as a topic. Setup is something that we don't really hear about until it's gone wrong. So Lewis Hamilton, a lot will go, yeah, wrong setup. Is it a go-to excuse for a driver to go? Oh no, I'm not. I'm not bad today. I, I've just got the setup wrong. It's certainly it's convenient, but also probably normally the truth. Um, the setup, the setup's so vital, especially in a more complex car like a Formula One car. You could quite easily take most dominant car of all time, and with some very basic changes to things like ride height, tire pressures, downforce levels, make it a horrible car to drive and make it much slower than the worst car on the grid. So there's quite a big scope within your setup window to make the car better or much, much worse. I think I've got a start point. Uh, One thing we hear a lot is balance. So they talk about, oh, no, the the balance of the car was wrong. Yes. Uh, So drivers are looking for a certain ideal when they talk about balance. They want the car to react in a certain way. And it does definitely depends on the driver. And um, we've got a piece in our show notes here about the varying driving styles of Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton um, by Mark Hughes. And it's quite an interesting read. I, I actually tend to think it's pretty accurate what he said there. Oh, it's so um, good. I, I don't even know if this is recent, but I just came across it. And I, and I don't think it was an article. I think he just randomly responded to someone on a, on a Reddit post. Yeah. And, and like, in fact, this would be, I'd love to see just Brad just pick that apart, actually. I think that's a pretty good place to start. Yeah, so essentially, to boil down what this article says, um, it, it Noble is... Sorry, hang on, is this... No, it's it Mark, was Mark Hughes, Hughes so and it was a, a Reddit reply rather than an article. Okay, so Mark Hughes is basically saying that Max Verstappen prefers... And we're talking very fine margins here. It's not really something you could see particularly visually watching the cars react on track. It's really something you'd need to be looking at data uh, and going into the into the detail to see. But Verstappen has a tendency to prefer a slightly more snappy, reactive front end uh, because of the way he approaches corners in general. We're not talking about every corner because certain corners you have to take in a certain way. But as a general rule, Max tends to turn in very slightly earlier than some other drivers, brake slightly earlier, um, and then later in the middle of the corner have a car that's set up that reacts on those and the rear rotates at that point in a way that other drivers feel a bit more uncomfortable with. They don't like that level of um, rear movement at that phase in the corner. And this is obviously very, we're really making this as basic as possible. Sorry, Spanners, go for it. No, there is something that stuck with me from from karting, and this was in indoor karting where there's a, a little bit less grip. And, and something that I passed on to my son as well, which is at the end of the corner, uh, at the end of the braking phase, obviously you brake very hard into the corner. And then as you start turning, you've still got a little bit of brake on, but you, you release that. And the thing you said to me was, okay, you don't need to worry about the brake now because you're, you're turned, your front wheels are turned into the hairpin. Your tyres are now the brake. So I think what Mark Hughes was driving at was in that last phase, he's using the the tires not being straight to to be the last bit of the slowdown phase and therefore when he gets back on the power he's already rotating because his brakes which are his tires are essentially turning for him it was something along those lines yeah and every driver is doing that to a greater or lesser extent so we're just talking about the degree to which drivers prefer the car to allow them to do more or less of a certain thing um, so yeah, so that's that's pretty much it. He's using the front tires to do a bit more of the final part of the deceleration rather than 
breaking all the way up and then getting the car turned. Okay. And by contrast, Lewis Hamilton's general style was more that he would take a uh, less of that slightly early turn in more of a geometrically ideal line. If you were to just look at a picture of a corner and draw what you think is probably the geometric ideal line. Um, and that then asks a bit more of the rear stability. It means that at the point you get the car turned in, you need the rear to be a little bit more stuck to the floor because otherwise it's going. you're asking more of it by doing that technique. But what it will do is lead these two slightly different driving styles down different setup paths because you need the car to be set up differently for each of those things. And, and what Hughes said at the end of that post was essentially a car set up by Verstappen, Hamilton would think, didn't have enough rear grip and a car set up by Hamilton, Verstappen would think, oh, this doesn't turn enough when I need it to. It's got too much rear grip. Um, and those will just be things mm. that they've developed through their driving career. And it's a tendency they will have that will have worked for them over their driving lives. And and yeah, and so you kind of end up with this style, which is within quite a narrow range, really. That's roughly yeah. the same, but it's just small nuances. So I remember Mark Webber complaining or or just pointing out that there was uh, that he would u-shape a corner and Vettel would more v a corner or it could have been the other way around so what what Verstappen's doing is he's he's borrowing a bit more of the 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 angle if you like so he starts pointing towards the apex a little bit earlier uh, whereas Hamilton's kind of more of a say a u-shape around a, a hairpin but the the really interesting thing from this is since they're both really in reality number one drivers so Hamilton's been a number one driver you know with Kovalainen and with with Bottas with Rosberg uh, to to a certain degree they must be messing things up for their teammates if they don't like a car that is in exactly in that same same way so things like Albon talking about the rear end being so super sensitive and snappy when you talk about, well, which is the better driver, who would win in a team between Verstappen and Hamilton, it's hard to go, well, well, maybe you develop a car that suits those characteristics a bit more. I don't know. Yeah, the only way that that ever becomes even a, a roughly equal question is if you're talking about a car that has a fixed setup. And even in that situation, that fixed setup could be better or worse for one driver or the other, depending on the way they've developed their skills through their formative years and what they have arrived in Formula One wanting from a car. And that's why you really need those setup adjustments. Even in the most basic single-seater, the you know, most junior level, there's still setup adjustment that you can use to to tweak a car towards your preferences. And by the time you get to Formula One, your preferences are going to be pretty firmly solidified in your driving brain. So, so yeah, that, that always makes that... Uh, pretty impossible question to answer that in the same car who would be better because it depends whether or not they can get that car into the window that they need for their style so yeah so if Perez had say in the same car just gone for his setup where perhaps he's a bit more like Hamilton so a little bit like he would want more of the rear end on entry so he wants the rear end to be really stable whereas uh, Max wants it to uh, to to be looser so that he can just deal with it and get it rotated so Perez could probably have just been consistently P2, for example, if he'd have just gone, do you know what, I'll just make sure I have it set up how I want it to be set up. Yeah, and it may well be that a certain preference, a certain style or, you know, this this exact concept we're talking about, um, certain way that you need the car to feel to be comfortable and to get the most out of yourself might suit one generation of cars 
more or less. Um, I'm sure we've gone over the Vettel getting on with the exact technique that needed to be used for the blown diffuser back in, in his Red Bull Prime. Yet when the formula changed and the cars didn't need that, that that style or the way that he needed the car or the way he liked the car to be driven there was no longer a key strength of his. So it does really depend. And if the formula develops away from how it was when you started or, or if it was good for you when it started and develops away, that could really be something there's nothing you can do about. I think maybe Ricardo could be someone that you could point to. Weber, um, Raikkonen as well like especially with the tires so the tires definitely went away from Weber and there was a brief moment in 2013 where they did they stiffen mat the tire wall and then suddenly Weber could lean on it the exact oh, opposite right, okay. <laughs> what they did was they changed the sidewall uh construction they they went back to they went to cotton belts or went to Kevlar I forget what they did exactly but essentially it made the sidewall a lot wobblier and that ruined everybody's favorite summer's word, tire, tire squirt. squirt. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, as a result, Vettel had a really hard time driving that car, and Weber loved it. it. It worked a lot more like he preferred the car to work. And, of course, once the tires exploded at Silverstone, which, again, I'm at odds to point out, the teams were running the tires on the wrong sides, in the wrong directions, at unrecommended pressures, which is mainly why they exploded. But having done that, Red Bull browbeat the FIA into going back to the old <laughs> specification gonna, of tires. That's what I was going to say. And that'll went on to win the championship. I was going to say, who lobbied for the old... Yeah. Sa- for safety grounds, you for understand. Safety, entirely entirely safety for safety grounds. grounds. Yeah. Not, let's just stop putting wheels on the opposite side to say uh, tire wear. Uh, but yeah, so though, that, there's some really... Sorry, a bit of a diversion there. But that's a really good example of, yeah, it, that, that certain formulas might suit certain drivers. And since the regulations change so often... That makes it even harder to pick apart, even between 10 years. Like, who's to say Prime Alonso is better or worse than Max Verstappen now? You would have to, you can only say which driver would be better in this specific regulation set, I suppose. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like, what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And even then, you're assuming they're in a car that 
has the setup capability to get it in a window that they're comfortable with. There's so many variables. Uh, it makes it well, it's, it's such a difficult question to answer. Before we move on to something different, I just want to do John M. the justice of actually answering what, his question, uh, or, or part of it at least. He asked, at what point do you start messing around with setups? And what, um, what are my go-to setup changes? Um, and the short answer is, you start messing around with setups before you even get onto the track. So you'll have a, a rough idea of what the vehicle, car, cart, sim, car, whatever it is, you have a rough idea of what they need for a particular circuit type or certain conditions. Um, so you won't go to Monza, for example, with loads of downforce on because you know that'd be silly. Um, but really from the first time you drive on track, you're not driving completely the wrong lines, especially if you know the track. Even if you don't know the track, within a couple of laps, you're going to be roughly on you know, a very good approximation of what the eventual ideal lines and braking points and gears and that kind of thing are going to be. So you could tell pretty easily if something's wildly wrong with the setup and then you'd start changing at that point. And as your driving gets more fine honed and, and tuned on that circuit in that car, you'll be doing a similar thing with the setup, nudging it towards the area that, that you want it to be in, the, the behavior of the car where you need it to be. My go-to setup changes, obviously start with the easiest things first and the biggest, quickest, easiest things on a downforce dependent car or, or wing levels, You know, quite a quick change. And it's pretty obvious if you want more front grip in a medium to high speed corner, you add more front downforce and same on the rear. The tire pressures as well, quite a quick change. Um, it's not quite as easy an answer to say going up or down, whether that's going to make it better or worse. It depends what you need to do and what window you're trying to keep it in, where its ideal pressure is. But essentially, that's what you do. You go to those easy things. And then once you couldn't do those, we'll be looking at things like spring stiffness changes, things that take a bit longer, um, suspension geometry, things which are going to require you to get out of the car and go and have a, a cold uh, drink whilst the mechanics take over. Well, have you uh, ever had a situation then when you say to a, an engineer or a mechanic, I, I think I need this change that's going to take about an hour, and the look on their face is like, what can I say to this driver to make it so that I can just eat my pasty in peace? You you certainly would get that in um, in the less professional <laughs> levels um, where you've got one one or two mechanics needing to do all the work themselves and they don't want to have to do that especially if they don't think that's right or if they think actually there's more to come from the driver before you get onto that uh, i'm sure I've, I've certainly witnessed that more other people asking that because I, i've not had the benefit of being in very many racing championships where there has been that much setup you can change or you're not driving with teammates where everybody has to agree before anything gets changed anyway <laughs> the vast majority yes. of my racing life I've been racing in endurance events where you're on a three or four person team. And um, and so you would definitely consult with your teammates before making any, any substantial changes. I've had a mechanic for a race car just flat out say no to me. I'm not going to name the series or the people because they were, they're really nice. But I got into a car that was set up for someone substantially taller than me. And it's not a secret that I don't have the longest limbs in the world and I got into the car and my feet couldn't quite comfortably reach the pedals I went can this seat shift forward a bit and in like a, a race converted stripped out car it's not a case of having the little slider everything's bolted in and they just looked at me and went no I went, oh, okay can I can I have a cushion <laughs> so I had to go through the humiliation of having a little cushion behind my back just to give my little legs a little bit more of a chance to get to the pedals well, uh, this kind of relates to the fact, you know, we were talking about rookies a bit last Sunday and uh, Logan Sargent has come out and said specifically that he felt F one of the major failings of Formula 2 in preparing for Formula 1 was just how complex the task of 
the driver working with the engineer is when you get to that level. And I was just curious from your own experience, how long it took for you to start to know, uh, I need more, I, the anti-roll bar isn't stiff enough. I need, I need this adjustment on the front, this adjustment on the back in order to get the most out of this particular platform. Yeah, so generally you, you kind of rely on good communicative engineers in your formative years to, to help you out with that kind of thing and to, to help suggest changes that will let you get a feel for how the car changes its behavior when you make that change. So if you've never changed an anti-roll bar stiffness level, for example, in your junior career, you're not going to have any idea really how it feels when you get into a Formula One car and therefore you won't probably suggest that as a change. And the further you get up the ladder, obviously the more complex the setup adjustment tends to become. Um, and it's no secret that I've not really personally raced in series where you do a lot of that. You just you just don't. Um, most of my experience in terms of setup changes is simulator driving because it's a very, very quick change. But obviously you're not necessarily getting the exact same feel that you would from that change in real life. Um, but what you do certainly learn is is the concepts. You You have a rough idea that making something stiffer, making one corner or um, one axle front or rear of the car stiffer or softer will have a certain effect on the car. Um, but quite often, definitely the majority of cars I've raced, you get in it and you drive it how it is and you are only really allowed to make very basic changes because you're, you know, I'm in for one race and, uh, or it's like a, it's just a more basic vehicle that, that doesn't really need that kind of change. So this is all part of my mission to prove that doing sim racing is basically the same as being a real race car driver. But in our community of sim racing, we do notice that the guys like yourself, uh, like Danny, who have been in out on the road in real single-seater race cars, when there's something wrong with, say, the official setup that we are setting up for everyone else, they're very good at going, oh, if you put the roll bar setting it here, or if you set the rear suspension like that, it will make it more drivable or it will make it better for the faster guys or whatever. Kyle's actually very good at that as well. So it feels like that does translate into the sim world. Definitely. Mm. I mean, sitting here right now, if, if you said, for example, I've got oversteer on throttle out of the slow corners, I have a menu of options in my mind of things that I would go to immediately to change. So you wouldn't necessarily fix it straight away. It, the The cause might be something different, but You've certainly got this kind of, like I say, a menu of options to change. I'd say, okay, maybe we could lower the rear ride height. We could, obviously there's things you could do in terms of the driving, but if we're just talking purely about setup, um, we could give it some more rear towing. These are things which tend to stabilize the rear end of the car. Um, and then we could go into the driving side because there's a lot you could do on the driving side to cure those problems. And it may well be that that's the problem. Um, but if you, if you were a, Assuming that you're driving it perfectly, if we're talking about, or, or close to perfect, we're talking about a professional driver where the problem probably is the setup or, or the, the way to find time is the setup. We've got some options straight away because um, the basics tend to be the same. Okay, here's a question that you won't know the answer to, but I'm going to insist that you guess. So George Russell and Lewis Hamilton on any given weekend, there's a car that has a potential of a certain lap time. How much will the broad range of changes that they might choose make a difference? Are we talking about finding a second? Are we talking about tenths of a second? If Hamilton's faster than Russell one weekend, you know, how often would we say, oh, that's down to a, a setup choice 
that we made. So ju- just how big a factor are these setup choices? Yeah, obviously it's impossible to say for sure. Guess. But when you're talking about Formula One, some setup factors could impact, Matt will love this, impact whether or not you've got the tyres working and then you are talking seconds. Yes. Um, if you are if you assume the tyres are pretty much in the window all the time and it's more of a, a general setup thing, then you're talking many tenths potentially between an ideal setup and something that's kind of okay but not quite right so you know we're talking massive in formula one terms that's massive performance differences however within a team you generally expect both sides of the garage to have to be privy to the information on the other side of the garage so they'd see in the data quite quickly in which areas the one driver was losing out to the other one and if that was setup related and there was a, a clear setup discrepancy between the two, you could probably find that issue quite quickly. So I, I doubt there's many weekends where you end the weekend with drivers on wildly different setups and one has just been slow all weekend and sticking with it. You probably generally work your way towards something roughly equivalent. Well, one of the things that that I would like to ask about um, is it seems to me looking at Formula One and and this is from you as a driver and still talking about setups, it seems like there is always sort of an inherent compromise between being fast on a single lap and preserving tires for a whole race. And that, that seems, especially preserving the tires for the whole race, seems to be a real skill uh, in uh, current Formula One. Yeah, so if we move away from the setup side of that, in terms of driving, obviously there's lots of things that a driver can do to either extract pace right now over over one lap, get a fast lap or or make a gain in the short term, or try and extend the life of the, the tires primarily and have more of a, a consistent level of pace throughout the rest of the race, rather than it being peaky and then falling away from them. And generally, and all of these things we're having to generalize because we, we're not talking about any one specific situation. We're, we're kind of just pointing to a general thing. Uh, you're talking about treating the tires more nicely, putting less energy into them, um, and being smooth with the controls um, on, on a real fa- um, kind of surface level. That's what you need to do as a driver to make tires last or, or make anything last. But the tires are the thing that are changing the most over the course of a, of a race stint. So what that means is not ask to we can start getting into grip circles but then we're we're almost in just a, a lesson so i won't i'll spare you that but effectively uh, a tire lessons are fine a tire, a tire can only do a certain amount of work and that can be in uh you know a number of directions but if you're asking it to say for example turn in a tight corner um it it can only do that at a certain speed it can't have it at an angle you know you're you're turning through a corner and there's obviously, obviously some your you can't have it do that and also ask for the maximum possible acceleration um, out of a corner because it's already using up a lot of its potential with the lateral force. If you then introduce the the throttle and you're asking for the tire to propel you forwards, you're going to have a lot less potential to do that than you would if you're going in a straight line. So the more you blend these things, the more you cross over and ask the tire to do more things at once the more you're going to wear it out quickly. And obviously, the moment you start introducing a level of scrub with the front tires, for example, if you're turning aggressively or turning the wheel slightly further than might be absolutely necessary and it starts to scrub, you get even a minor amount of understeer, you're going to wear them out quicker. So as a driver, if you're 
if what you're looking to do is prolong the life so you've got a bit more tire life, whether that's from temperature or simply wear level later in the stint, you have to be very mindful of accelerating mm. smoothly, braking not over the limit and having those minor lockups. Um, these are all things that are probably very obvious and straightforward to a lot of listeners, maybe not totally obvious to some listeners, um, but those things are what a driver is changing when they go from that one lap mindset to the race stint mindset. Super obvious. But there's obviously there's a, a skill to, to knowing to what degree to do that. So if you're tyre saving efficiently is the skill level of tire saving up there with the skill level of pushing hard i think so because it's very easy to save tires by going much slower than you need to whereas it's very very difficult to go as fast as possible while still saving just enough tire it's that balancing you know it'd be very easy for a formula one driver to finish a race with 50 percent wear left if they just went slower you were saying a driver can finish with 50% wear on his tyre. Something I'm curious about is all the drivers whinge and complain when their tyre life is going lower. So they all have to fight the strategist because they go, well, I can't, I can't race properly on this tyre. I need new tyres. The strategist can see, no, that will cost you too much time. So is there a skill to driving on worn tyres? And, and if so... You wouldn't know it from listening to F1 drivers because they all seem to be like, oh, these tyres are shot. They're gone. But everyone's tyres are gone. So is there, can you be, can you win the race by being better at driving on worn tyres than other people are? It, that's going to really depend um, completely on what the lap time delta is on, on a given set of worn tyres to, uh, you know, a slightly less set, a uh, worn set. Because it could be that, it's, there's just no avoiding the fact when a when a particular tire gets to a certain wear level, and sometimes it's temperature rather than wear. But let's just talk about wear for the moment. It might be that that's two seconds a lap slower. It doesn't matter who you are. The best that tire can be driven is two seconds a lap slower than a say a seventy percent worn tire is two seconds slower than an eighty percent worn. Completely pulling this out of thin air. In which case, it doesn't matter how good you are. You're better off on a fresh set because you're going to be losing too much time over the rest of the stint or, or whatever it is. But if we're assuming there isn't that much delta between them or it's a very gradual, progressive drop-off, um, then, yeah, the skill is essentially trying not to excessively wear them even more because once tyre becomes a bit more slippery, it's very easy to spiral into allowing and it to slide well. and then it gets worse mm. and worse, overheating and excessive wear because we already mentioned when it's sliding, it wears very, very fast. So refraining or restraining yourself from allowing it to do that, you know, getting frustrated and just letting it understeer a bunch into a corner or giving it too much gas on the exit and, and having a lot of oversteer just because you can cope with it doesn't mean that it's fast mm. and maybe you're going to really kill those tires much quicker. So it's more the skill then is probably more restraint and, 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 and the judgment again, you know, judging exactly how much you can get out of the tire without making it even worse. Um, but yeah, that's that's really yeah. the answer. Could go either way. Depends what the time delta is. Well, the, the big example for this, when I'm when I'm thinking about the difference in drivers, was is Hamilton versus Bottas. So when they were in the same car, and you you looked at them at the end of stint one, and they, there seemed to be a huge difference in drop off. So Bottas was fast enough to qualify well, uh, and occasionally he'd be you know start well, and he'd be ahead of Hamilton. And Hamilton did this kind of stalking thing where they sat in pattern. And then you'd see towards the end of the stint, if you're watching the live timings, you'd see the whole grid's lap time start to go down. And at that point, that's when Hamilton was able to kind of pounce. So, you know, what was the difference? Was he just 
managing his tyres better so he was saving it, or was he better at driving at the lower wear points? But that was a pattern that happened over and over again to the point now, if I'm, if I'm watching Hamilton in a, in a battle with anyone, I'm always looking towards the end of a stint. So if it's a track where the tyres aren't going off, I know Hamilton doesn't have that advantage. When it's a high wear, high wear track and, and he's behind cars towards the end of the stint, I start to get confident. Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I suspect the answer is more the former thing you suggested. Not, not that Hamilton's better at driving on worn tyres than Bottas, more that the way he's driven them up to that point means that there is more tyre life available at this at the time where it isn't available for the Bottas in this situation. So it's possible for two drivers to drive the exact same lap times for 15 laps, but one of them is driving that lap time in a way that isn't asking as much of the tyres because they're finding the lap time in, in other ways. You know, maybe Hamilton, again, I'm just making this up, but maybe Hamilton is braking later, but when he's doing that braking later, he's doing it in a straight line. So Bottas is braking um, with a little bit more steering angle or he's crossing over a bit more. They're achieving the same lap time whilst the tyres are at a similar early stage of wear. But once they get more worn, once you get further into the stint, Hamilton has more remaining. He's used 5% less tread or something like that. So that's what I suspect. And then you see this lap time differential later in the stint. I suspect it's that he's got more life left because of the way he's treated them. And there's definitely an art to doing that. And it depends on the tyre and it depends on the car. One thing that I really want to ask you about, because I know you have driven race cars in actual races, is when we talk about the tires, I know there's physical degradation. I know there's thermal degradation. And I also know that the amount of tread you have left affects your ability to keep the tire in the quote unquote window. So maybe you could start by explaining what the window is and work backwards through those. Well, I'm absolutely stunned Spanners is allowing this amount of tire chat, um, but I'll entertain it until well, until he Hang on, I've got, I've got the tire whisperer on, Matt Trumpets, who's a renowned for his love of tires and an actual tire test Expert. driver. Who's, yeah, so I really have no choice. I think the, the peasants will revolt if I was to stop this. Okay, so the window is the point at which the tire is performing optimally. Um, you know, you're, you've got a good level of grip. It's not dropping away quickly. Um, and you're getting the amount of front end and rear end grip that you want and expect. And on a given set of tyres, it's quite easy to be in that window for a brief period of time. Let's um, say a qualifying lap. For most tyres, Formula One tyres are quite specific in that they fall away very quickly um, compar compared to maybe the first or second lap. But you can keep the tyre in that window, even if you push it really hard, for a lap or two laps, say. But most tyres will then tend to lose performance from then on if it's that early in a stint it's probably not the amount of tread remaining it's normally that they're overheating because you're pushing them too hard so to keep them in the window the answer is to not push them too hard it's to treat them slightly more gently accept the fact that you're going to have a slight lap time loss initially but the average lap over the whole stint depending how long that is is going to be better than it would be if you went out really hard at the beginning and then the tires fell away at the end this is something i've got a lot of experience with in endurance racing because you're having to make tires last not just one stint you might have inherited a set of tires that's already done two stints in your teammates hands and they might have known that they weren't going to have to see them through to the end so <laughs> they your teammate might have taken a bit out of a bit more out of them 
than they would have done had they known they had a triple stint, not just a single stint, for that example. Bastard. And then their then their lap times look really good to the team <laughs> boss, and then you get in on the old tires, and they go, "Oh no, I was I was really nice to them." Um, but anyway, if you know that, you've that got a long sound, time, that does sound like a real story in there somewhere. I, I just it's not a particular story I think it's just happened to me loads I'm sure I've been on both sides of that fence <laughs> yeah, um, yeah okay yeah that wasn't a victim story that was a yeah, a Ted Bundy of, of tyre wear story I, I remember very clearly this is a specific example um, Nürburgring 24 hours in 2013 and the race had been extremely varied in terms of conditions normally wet um, and I inherited a set of very used wet tyres for essentially a dry stint towards the end of the race because the way it worked out, either we didn't have enough tyres left or or it would have just cost too much time to to do another stop because of how close to the end of the race we were. So I had to try and keep these tyres, in, in a, these wet tyres, which are designed for much colder, wetter uh, conditions, in the window, in the dry. And it basically just involves under-driving because... You, although you know I'm having to brake really early here, I'm having to turn in really gently, not cross over my braking and my steering or my acceleration and my steering, particularly in a front-wheel drive car like I was in here. Um, you know that if I don't do those things, I'm going to lose, instead of five seconds a lap or 15 or whatever it is on the Nordschleifer, I'm going to lose two minutes a lap. The reason I bring up that example is because with wet tyres, what you really feel, if you're driving wet tyres in the dry, anyone who's done this on circuit in a cart or a car, race car, will know that if you drive wet tyres in dry conditions in a very short period of time, it feels it, it literally feels like you're driving on jelly. And I use the word literally in it, with its correct meaning there. It feels like jelly is underneath you. Every steering input you apply, nothing happens for ages. And then when it does, the whole vehicle kind of lurches the other way. And you never quite know how much of your rotation is because the tyre is squishing but the actual tread is still in the same place on the on the asphalt and the vehicle's just kind of moving on this squishy bed that it's got or whether you're actually sliding. And it's a horrible position to be in because you don't want to correct a slide that isn't happening, but your car is at an angle. And so it feels like you should be correcting it. And anyway, you want to avoid that. All right. Is that enough tyre chat? Have I allowed enough? Are you happy? Are you satisfied out there? Okay, so all winter we've been doing meet the panel type uh, conversations where it's taken us away from motorsport so we've had some veterinary chat and we found out about chris catmantona rescuing <laughs> rescuing chris stevens because a, a bird had got stuck in his cupboard something that will go down in in mist apex law forever and a lot of the team have lives away from motorsport so what we've done is we've done a hard stop and we've said right here's the end of the motorsport stuff I want you to now meet the panel. But because it's Brad and he's got so much racing experience, there's one listener question which overlaps and merges together this driver skills topic and meeting the panel. So everyone, meet Brad Philpot, somebody who some of the listeners like. I think that's fair to say, Brad. So you have, you've become a divisive character online, which is hilarious to me because the thing that made you uh, divisive on Twitter, and I, I just remember the exact point where you just went, oh, I'm just going to say what I think. And like, it was genuinely, it wasn't a, I'm doing this for clicks. It was just going to, it's just a, I'm, I'm just going to just give my opinion regardless of whether other people will disagree with it. And you just started being honest about stuff. And I knew your opinion before that. 
So I saw ultra polite Brad being all diplomatic and like, well, you know, maybe that horrible thing was uh, by accident or something because you were trying to be nice. And then suddenly you just went, ah, do you know what? I'm just going to say what I think. And then your Twitter exploded and you had as many fans as you did uh, deriders. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in short, I don't even need to go into specifics because you're going to, everyone listening <laughs> will just know what this is about immediately. I've always, through my entire fan life, watching Formula One, and, and I've watched Formula One since I was a very mm. young child. I think my first season of really paying attention was maybe 1996, oh, but I was you, certainly aware of it before that. You sweet summer child. I know, I know, you're much older. <laughs> but but that was the first year, so I would have been 11 when I, I obviously watched it before because I was racing go-karts before that, but I just knew more from that point. I was, I probably... Mm. Yeah, you're always proper yeah. fan at that point reading autosport every week and really absorbing all the information anyway um from my whole fan life i've been pretty impartial i i had preferences for certain drivers i also didn't like michael schumacher in his heyday because of things he had done i didn't like his adelaide 94 move that was very cynical and, and essentially cheating i didn't like that i didn't like the other times that that schumacher did um, naughty things like Hereth 97 when he clearly turned in on Villeneuve and was disqualified from the championship for it and back in those days deliberately turning in on someone gave you a disqualification and then we arrived at the 2021 season where what I saw in front of me was essentially one driver being allowed to drive in a way which I'd always known as illegal um, deliberately essentially causing a crash or if if you didn't cause a crash it was purely because the other person had had driven around the accident and and kind of backed out in a way they they did they had no obligation to do and it happened once it happened twice and then it became a clear pattern and then it became almost codified by the organizers not clamping down on it and we then got as far as an admitted brake test and still nothing and it really it really irked me because as much as as I you know I'm British and I'd probably had a preference for for British drivers over the years in Formula 1 I I'm all, I've always been more a fan of of a fair fight and a good fight and people fighting within the same rules and suddenly the sport that I loved in front of me was turning into something where it seemed like you could do or one person or team in particular could do things that had never been allowed and um, for them at least was was suddenly being allowed and that that made me want to say that yeah. on twitter and and, and, I did. and what what was what's hilarious is that you've then but as a result of that people go oh you're such a hamilton fanboy assuming that you being you know outspoken about some of those actions is is driven by you being a hamilton fan but you've always like basically mocked me <laughs> me and and other people uh, when we were being overly hamfosi because and and that, and this is so from my point of view I've always seen you just calling your opinion as it is uh, but the second you go against say Verstappen people assume you're a, a, a Hamilton fan and 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 I, whenever I say anything against Hamilton because I uh, want more from him because I'm a fan of him I actually get a lot of hate from Hamilton fans as well but I think that's just the nature of of F1 commentary now is that unless you're in one camp or the other you will get othered. You'll get, you know, highlighted as being on the other team. People definitely just haven't seen the times when I've been critical of 
every driver, yeah, any racing situation, I'm obviously going to make a judgment in my mind watching a, a racing incident. And I'm always applying the same the same framework to what you're allowed to do, what the drivers on track in that situation did do, what options were available to them, and therefore whose fault it was. Um, and yeah, the the fact that one driver and team were the subject of so much of my negative um, analysis in that particular year, and sometimes since, is purely indicative of the fact that they're the ones that were doing it. Um, you know, it's not really fair. Well, I didn't I didn't feel it was fair to to say I was being um, biased against that particular driver. It was, it was purely the things that were happening on track that year. But anyway, so um, I I hate defending you. Because in our personal relationship as friends, you and I argue a lot. So, but what I like about arguing with you is that there's very few arguments except uh, veganism. Most of our arguments will will have a raging row and then one of us will just, you know, move towards the other or we'll meet in the middle. Um, So I I do like the fact that, you know, I, I do see you as a critical thinker. Uh, but I would rather win that argument. So I, I'm, I'm, I have no motivation to defend you. Uh, but I believe if we painted all the cars white, so you couldn't tell which driver and which car was which, I honestly, genuinely believe that you would come to exactly the same conclusions. So I now have defended you, so I can ask a slightly rude question. So Steve H asks a question which isn't about you, but I'm going to make it about you. Is it possible to get good at sim racing as a washed out 30 something? Or am I doomed forever to lose to the youths? So Matt obviously has a, a stake doomed. in this. <laughs> Absolutely doomed. Because Matt pointless. didn't start doing anything until 50. So Matt's a really good example of, of that. I didn't start. Later. Was it later? Later than it, it was, it yeah, was later, your 50s. Yeah, so you yeah, drove your a go-kart for the first time at what, 54, I think, actually. Yeah. Thinking, yeah. Um, and me thinking I was good at karting because I was a stag do hero. I didn't get to apply any driver skills properly until into my mid-30s as well. From your point of view, Brad, when I first met you, what, eight years ago? I think, what, what were you, 30? And you were Nordschleife class champion. You, you had the world at your fingertips. There was still a chance that you could be progressing up the uh, sports car ladder, whereas now you're near, nearer 40. And that is the exact age range that we see f1 drivers often start to just drop off that very elite level so my question is as a 38 year old 38 37 38 year old as a 38 year old are you washed do you feel it do you feel that difference in age so you're certainly right that (laughs) the older i get the faster i was Um, there you go which is a common aging race driver phrase um it's difficult to say because I'm not getting to race the same things as I was you, when I was younger. You certainly, you certainly feel like things are harder in terms of um, being motivated to put the practice in when you've achieved certain things. I'm not saying I, I don't have like the most glittering career ever, but um, if you'd asked 12 year old Brad if he'd be happy with some of the cool things I've got to do um, now, I'm a lot older. I think I probably would have taken it. Um, yeah, it's harder to be motivated to care about the smaller things. So I see people who, in the past, I would have regarded as not so much of a, a threat in terms of driving, but they might not have had the championship success or or won certain things that I've been fortunate enough to to do or win. And so they still care enough to put the practice in to to get the results. And I feel a little bit more of like a um, quite chilled about it. I'll, I'll 
practice as much as I need or I'll do as much fitness as I need to to get to like a basic level and I'm happy with that. That would change very quickly if I fell into a lot of money and suddenly had enough money to to race anything I wanted. And I think suddenly the motivation would be back because there'd be the opportunity to race uh, you know, at a higher level than I had done or in championships that I actually really care about that I'd want to be on top form for. But as it stands, I, I'm doing some pretty kind of low level kart racing, which just to because it's enjoyable and um and sim racing like like the rest of you guys. And so yeah, it's difficult to tell where that line is. Uh, am I just am I declining? Or do I not care as much? Or is it just simply I'm racing in different stuff so that you can't tell? Um to answer the question um from our listener, it I would say, can you can you get good at any sport when you're past a certain age, if you're starting from scratch? And probably the answer is it depends what level you're looking to get to. I've seen, and it also depends what competition you're entering. I don't think anyone is going to get to an elite level of any sport when they're past a certain age. Obviously, the more physical the sport, the more difficult it becomes. But motorsport isn't that physical. Um, compared to uh, high-level physical sports. Yeah, unless you're in... To, unless you're, yeah, doing Excel spreadsheets. Yeah, unless you're in um, you know, high-powered single-seaters or something... A general basic level of fitness is is not um, not too difficult to achieve for that for motorsport. So if we're saying it's just on like a an age problem in terms of mental decline or not having enough time, I've seen drivers in their fifties get a driver coach and go and win an international GT championship, having never done anything before. And there's a number of reasons that they're able to do that. First of all, they're the kind of people generally that like. They're successful in their business life and they don't need to actually work anymore and they just spend all their time practicing, get a good simulator, go-karting loads of the time and do tons of track days or test days or whatever in their Ferrari challenge car. And they get a really good co-driver, someone like a, a me who is like their coach and also does half the driving in a team and then they they go and win pro, that championship. Pro-am, pro-am. A, pro, yeah. a pro-am series, exactly. But the fact is that they've got good enough to go and race a high-powered sports car in an international championship without crashing it or being far enough off the pace that they can't win the championship. And everyone's taking it very seriously. So, yes, that's possible. Are you going to manage to be to win an iRacing world or national championship when you start in your mid-30s? I think it'd be difficult. I think it just depends. Uh, so- Maybe some people are special enough and they've developed the skills necessary yeah. in another area of their, their life earlier maybe they were a fighter pilot i don't know maybe. they've got really good coordination or motor skills i think for most people it's it's hard but you can definitely get to a very respectable level because although it's harder to make the progress and learn if you want it enough and you do enough practice then you can certainly get to a very good standard so in your experience then what would you tell an older beginner like like how do how how would I set the bar for myself to be realistic, but still make improvement? Yeah, it's a really good question. It depends exactly on your situation because if you've got lots of money, then I'd say dedicate I do not your have life lots to, of money. Dedicate your life to Let, let's talk about ordinary mortals <laughs> like myself yeah. and spanners. Yeah, uh, freelance. Going to sound bum. like We're a both freelance bums. It, this will sound like a cop out because it's such an obvious answer, but my best advice would be do it as much as you can. And if you want to fast track that process, uh, so you're not practicing things incorrectly, you know, getting into bad habits, 
then maybe consider getting a driver coach or or at least watching some where would we go to find a, a driver coach brad that wasn't a completely deliberate plug but it is just a fact <laughs> that that is that is a thing that will really help people if you'd like a, a particularly nice friendly driver coach that has your interests at heart then if you head to the racecoach.com you'll find me um so you know the race coach i must be the only one i must be Certainly the best one. Uh, that is Spanners <laughs> recommended, by the way. You, I, I absolutely guarantee you will not have a bad experience being coached by Brad Philpot. You are very nice. You're very encouraging, uh, and you're you're very personalised in that you you will. Some, sometimes coaches get a bit involved in their ethos and they go, ah, here's a philosophy and you must learn my mantras. But you are literally looking at a driver and going, you're doing that thing wrong. Let's try doing that. Uh, and also, one of the loveliest things is, like you sell. When I get it right, you celebrate, and I genuinely feel from you. You're like, "Yay! He did the thing that I asked him to do." That is really uh, that. That's the truth. Mm. That's the thing that makes it much easier for me. Is yeah. that I genuinely love when the person I'm coaching or instructing gets it right, and they they. I've seen it so many times, thousands of times over the over the decades. Someone suddenly gets a thing. Like it suddenly makes sense. Like with the example I gave earlier where, you know, you take the steering wheel and you put them on a different piece of track and they go, oh, okay, I understand why that's now easier to to do that or whatever. Uh, I, I genuinely love that stuff. So, um, so yeah, I'm doing uh, uh, an increasing amount of sim coaching and real world coaching. I'm off to Brands Hatch this Saturday to spend a day with a Citroen Saxo Cup driver, a nice. young 16-year-old lad. Oh, very good. Having his yeah. first coaching session. I'm, I'm absolutely excited to see <laughs> what he's like what what he's doing right and wrong and and build on that i've got over the next year um one of my long term um coaching clients is, uh, is the FIA's disability hang on what's her official yes. title i always get it yes. wrong disability yeah. president something like that uh, natalie mcgloin who's a tetraplegic mm-hmm. driver who races a porsche i've worked with her for a, a number of uh, years you helped and- her with her setup for sim racing yeah we're also doing some sim coaching yeah so natalie is is Doing, she's got a lovely simulator at her house, and I'm going to do in-person sim coaching, which is quite novel. Normally, it's online. We're going over there to literally sit next to her as if we would in a, in a real car, except with no danger, which is brilliant. Um, and then we'll go and replicate that in real life and and do some coaching at her race weekend. Okay, so, so you yeah, can I look in, when they do well. You can look in the show notes for the link to to Brad's coaching, which you can absolutely uh, go and and purchase. It's a premium service. You will not regret it. Brad, I get a bit of coaching for plugging this, right? So I think we need to Always. reveal that. So I, I'm torn because, you know, as much as I would like you to to help my son, you know, because he's now getting a, a little bit hooked on sim racing, we have the Missed Apex iRacing Championship starting in less than 10 days, and I desperately need help driving the Super Formula car. So so can you help me, Brad, just stay out of the wall in the Super Formula? What date is that, by the way? I'm looking at a massive calendar in front of me on my wall. I think it's February 9th. I'm going to get in such such trouble. Ooh, but I if might, you're interested, I might be able to do it. it's Friday evening at 8pm. I think it's February 9th and it is every month. Uh, so once a month we do it. Uh, we have one race in the F4 on iRacing, then the F3 and then the Super Formula all on the same track. Uh, you can buy a season pass for, for 25 quid. And there is, uh, well, I, I was going to say proper stewarding. We have a very loose stewarding system. It's very gentlemanly. Everybody is nice. And we have this kind of philosophy that you shouldn't ruin someone else's race. And sort of, it's quite a nice but competitive uh, uh, format. 
So email racecontrol at mistapex.net if you're interested in getting involved. But to Steve's question, uh, uh, is it possible to get good at, at sim racing or I'd say even karting? I think the secret is, A, finding your level. So there is a level for everyone, but there's a good golf analogy here, which is if you can get to the point in golf where you're not irritating everyone by constantly losing your ball and, you know, I, you know, slicing it into the woods and you have to wait five minutes for me to find my ball. If you can get to the point where you're landing it on the fairway and everybody just moves on and, and enjoys the game, that's probably more important than the score that you have at the end. So if you can go sim racing and not bin it in the wall, then you will find you will find a level where you can go, you know, be competitive with people. Why are you shaking your head, Matt? Are you a slicer into the forest? Is that why? No, I'm I'm a former competitive racer of bicycles. And the answer is no. No, you always want to win. Always. <laughs> Most people don't have the kind of you know mental illness that you and Brad have which is that that ultra-fierce competitiveness. I, I honestly think in sport, if you are winning, you're at the wrong level. And that's something I say to the kids. Like, never be like, unless you're world champion, never be super smug that you're smashing people. If you're in a karting series where you're winning by 30 seconds, you're just in the wrong series. Like, there is always a level where you're not the big fish. So that, that would be my advice to you, Steve, is get thrown Always in. a bigger pond. There's always a bigger pond. So get to the point where you're not sticking it in the barrier, where you're not slicing your drive into the right-hand side, where if it's badminton, where you're not just swinging and missing. Get the fundamentals of the sport correct, and you will always find your level. Brad Philpot, why aren't you a F1 driver? Um, yeah, probably many reasons. Um, but definitely a real reason would be finances probably the same as most drivers um, i've seen you up against great drivers in a go-kart you're as fast as anyone i've seen you sim racing and even when you don't know the car you're you're generally as fast as you know other people who haven't just been hammering that series you i know you've got stories that you don't have to share where you've been in the same equipment as people who did make it in formula one so I'm happy to share them. This is the best forum oh, to share okay, them. Okay, in that case, fine. <laughs> this, is the, this is the only place where people care. Why aren't you I'm, a Formula One driver, I'm Bradley? Trying to other people. Um, so oh, I don't even know where to start. Um, so this generally, this has been like the meet the panel bit where people tell you all about their lives. Exactly. And, yeah. And and I'm aware that I drop into Mist Apex um, occasionally, and unless people have like looked at my Wikipedia page, they they won't have a clue. They just be like, who the hell's this guy? Like just some club racer that's, or something that's the that, most emails we get who the hell's this guy who's phil bradpot exactly um so uh, yeah so long story short i started karting when i was about eight or nine years old at an indoor track in fairham um in the south of the uk and my family had like a kind of vague connection to motorsport this is and this is gonna make me sound like one of those rich kids that spanners was talking about a few um few episodes ago what was it I can't remember. He used a certain phrase. It was like um, rich kid bias memory or something. Um, it's where you where you recount a story as if it was you were, were really hard done by, but actually you had lots of opportunities. Um, it's not quite as bad as that, but it's going to sound like that. So my grandfather was world and European offshore powerboat champion. And that's because when he was um, a lot younger, he's in, uh, deep into his 80s now, when he was a lot younger... He had a very successful coach building company and had lots of money. This is before I was born. And 
decided, like wealthy people do, to go and fly planes and buy V12 powered catamaran powerboats. And like effectively, like a gentleman driver would do in a in a race car, went out and won the world championship in in his powerboat with his friend who um who also raced powerboats. Anyway, that all then stopped. Oh, he also had a Formula Ford team in the 70s, um, which I didn't know any of until I was in my teens because all that money disappeared well before I was born. And so I should have had one of these um, silver spoon, brilliant, rich kid lives where not only were your family interested in motorsport, but they've got millions of pounds to invest in it because they love you. But unfortunately, the money had all gone. Someone had absolutely made terrible decisions. And I was um, born into a family that remembered having loads of money, but didn't have it anymore. <laughs> and so I started karting slightly late and it wasn't anything to do with my my mum's side of the family, which is what my granddad's from. Um, it was my stepdad at the time. And that's a whole other story. He was interested in motorsport and me and my half brother, um, he just got to go to a local indoor kart track and we loved it. And we ended up um, getting a go-kart uh, cadet kart to do the local championships in which was kind of the done thing if you wanted to take it more seriously you got a car and you went racing locally and then the money for that ran out and i got to 12 years old and instead of moving into the next category that you do when you're 12 yeah. i just stopped basically so that's the first part of the story I, I love it yeah so i can't remember the phrase i used either but it was yeah the rich kid sob story where it actually it was a really good phrase it's actually probably harder to 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 be rich um and, and i think a lot of families suffer from that which i sort of call the hyacinth bouquet syndrome from uh I can't even remember. Keeping up appearances from from the nineties. So you've got um, uh, his, an ancestral uh, feeling that you're rich, but there's no actual money there. So, but even what you're talking about there, which is going karting, that that is already socioeconomically, I say, not a tier, cheap. A, it's not cheap, and that's already a tier above where where I was. And I, I had a cruel, I had the most cruel summer where. Uh, we were able to enter a couple of endurance karting uh, competitions at the local indoor kart track. There was a 30-second lap with three turns in a very small warehouse. And and I got the and I really got the bug. And I was like, oh my God, this is the most incredible thing. And and we just never got to do it again. And my dad's reasoning was um, it's a pound a minute. That's not good value. And he, he did all these other activities that we could do that were were less than a pound a minute. So a pound a minute was unacceptable for go-karting. But so even at that level already, just getting to go go-karting in the in the 90s and early noughties, that, that's one level. And then you go up to the next level, which is can you do owner-driver carts, which is obtainable in the motorsport circle. But still, you know, you've got to have at least professional parents at that point to be able to to go forward. So we're still talking like incredibly a middle-class pursuit, yet in the motorsport sphere, you are poor street rat scum. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> a really good way of putting it, basically. <laughs> and so as a street rat scum, I got to 12 years old, couldn't afford to go to the next class because you would have had to buy a new cart and new engine and all that kind of thing. And it was just like, oh, well, I hope you enjoyed it whilst you did it. That's great. And so from that point onwards, I became... Uh, a motorsport fan that's when i told you you know i was really then into formula one but what i did do was always go karting at any opportunity to indoor tracks or rental kart tracks i took any opportunity to go and 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 do some karting and then when i got to 18 
So, so fortunately, I'd had some formative years. You know, in the important years when you're quite young, I'd absorbed some stuff and then continued caring about it through the years where I didn't get to do it regularly. Um, and then I got to 18 and I could get a credit card and a loan oh. and all these things, which meant that I could just <laughs> buy my own car and then worry about the money later. So I did that. I got a massive loan How much? and credit cards. How much? Um, I, well, it gets bigger and bigger oh, okay. as we go into more motorsport. But do you initially, mind, do you mind sharing? Was, so I think initially it was £5,000. And with that, and this is I for karting. For karting, yeah. So and with that, I bought a very rubbish go-kart. I didn't know what I was buying. It was completely rusty. I got to the track for a test day, wanting to enter it in the race the following day. This is a track called Forest Edge in the south. And I was told, that car's not legal, mate. You can't race that. There's so many things on that that are that are not um, as per the current rules. You, you have were, to cut the chassis and weld it. You were cool runnings. Uh, yeah, pretty. Yeah, like that. You know, I didn't I didn't have a clue because it had been so many years since I've been involved. And I just wanted a go-kart. I just wanted a go-kart. So I did the practice. I also drove that car around the local roads. I remember overtaking a Ford Fiesta that, that's, um, that's, on, a, that's, on an A-road. Okay, that's crimes. Don't um, do crimes, kids. Yeah, I remember how good the cart felt going round a roundabout that had a little bit of camber oh, near my God. house. Um, and this was a, this was a two-stroke TKM. You know, it was yeah. like, really cool. I loved it. Didn't care. Um, and then I had to buy another cart because obviously that one wasn't legal. So I got a slightly newer one, just got more, more of a loan. They just kept giving me money. It was brilliant. I went and got a full-time job to try and pay this off. And the only reason for the full-time job was to pay off the... I, I was working as a like an admin assistant in a lorry trailer rental company. It was purely just to pay off the go-kart stuff. Me and my friend got a little trailer, a little wooden trailer, and we put our two, because uh, he got a loan too, put our little rubbish go-karts on. And we went to some local meetings. And um, I then, the next major thing that happened to me was I entered a Formula Ford scholarship competition that I saw in Autosport. It was £500, easy. You could easily get a credit card for that. £500. Oh, and you went and you had to go and do like a shootout. It was up at a track called Three Sisters in the north of the UK, in Wigan. And if you got through the first round, the second round was free. And if you then won the second round or the third round, you got to race a Formula Ford for a season for free. Oh, you didn't wind up racing IndyCar because you could have taken that 5,000 pounds and come over here. Yeah, it it didn't exist or I didn't know about that system existing at the time. But anyway, I didn't win the Formula Ford scholarship. I came fourth. But what I did do was become reasonably good friends at the time with the guy who won, who was an instructor at Bedford Autodrome. And he said to me, why don't you come and work at Bedford Autodrome? So I quit my lorry rental company job, moved my whole life up the country from Southampton to Bedford, where I still live now. Mm. This this is back in 2005. Um, And I worked as many days as they would give me. Well, first of all, I had to go and do the interview at Bedford Autodrome, which was a whole story in itself. But let's skip that part. I got the job. It was brilliant. And um, I worked there as a racing instructor from 2005 until 2017, um, which was essentially race driver university. I just got to sit in race cars all day, teaching people and absorbing slick tires, wet tires, prototype cars, front wheel drive, tin tops, GT cars, everything, caterums, doing demonstrations, giving people rides. And I got basically, I got all that experience that I should have got from actually racing. Go yeah. for Spanish. No, because like we, could, I know there's a million things I could talk to you about, and I'm, I'm wary of time here. Uh, I'd love to talk to you know to you about how you ended up you know being a class champion at the Nordschleife. Uh, there, there's you know been appearances in BTCC. There's a million great things you've done, but the most kind of glamorous TV thing 
probably as a direct result of the experience of all those different race cars you know you were able to do at that circuit being a coach was ending up at the race of champions beating sebastian vettel in a skills contest like how on earth does you know the equivalent of the street hockey team that the mighty ducks played that's that's you basically how did you end up then on telly driving with all the f1 drivers yeah, so the answer to all of those things you just said, how do I get to race for Peugeot, entered a Facebook competition and won it. Wow. How do I get to do the race of champions, entered a Facebook competition, won it. How do I get to do the Carlin Formula 3 driver search, Facebook competition, came second in that one, didn't oh. win it. Oh, and you the um, Red Bull Kart Fight champion in 2011 as well. Red, Red Bull Kart Fight, that wasn't a Facebook competition, but that was a, you know, like a enter the low level. And then if you get through to the next round, you win more and more and then it's free at the end. Yep. So that again was like a kind of social media competition. Yeah. The race of champions thing was just that. Um, it was a case of enter a video in this online poll on a website, which no longer exists. So you can't go and click it. I remember voting for you in that. Thank you. Um, yeah, enter a video. So you had to edit together a little video of some of your racing exploits. The public would then vote on it. The top 10 would then go into like a kind of more distilled vote. And then if you were in the top two at the end of the however long, one month or whatever it was of voting, um, then you got to go to the Race of Champions and do the skills challenge. That then evolved. So I, I got through, I got the most votes on my video. Thank, partly thanks to fake Charlie Whiting at the time on Twitter and Will Buxton, who both promoted it, and, and that really helped me get a lot of votes. Um, and then I had to go head to head with the guy in second on a like a lap time challenge thing at, at the former Olympic Stadium, and I won that. Got to then race in the main race of champions because um, Jorge Lorenzo, MotoGP rider, had injured himself at a party, and there was suddenly a space available. So I went from just doing this like ex- this skills challenge exhibition to then racing in the main competition. Going to the after party, hanging out with Massa and Ricardo and Grosjean and like on all the drivers in the in the um, race of champions, Jensen Button, and I have lots of stories that I can't repeat on here of really um, like uh, interesting things, fun that times, they happy fun spoke times. Spoke about, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, that that's how that happened. And like I said, the answer is Facebook competitions. So all of the cool stuff I've got to do in my racing life has been from making the most of these stupid dream scenarios that obviously are never going to come off because thousands of people are entering these competitions. The Peugeot thing I did, 400 international race license drivers from the UK. You had to have an international race license. 400 entered and I somehow won that thing. It was absolutely crazy. And then from that, I ended up doing several years of racing at the Nürburgring. So just um, trying to make the most of of small opportunities because that's the only way to do it unless you've just got lots of money to do it yourself. And and this is the the big argument that, that I have all the time, which is yeah, Lewis Hamilton's yeah great, um, uh, Max Verstappen's great, but really, if you could supply go karts to primary schools, if every primary school had a go kart, then Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen don't don't statistically get a look in because the, the money is such a limiting factor that all the way up the ladder people are falling off due to due to financial reasons. So, you know, does does the best driver always get from F4 up to Formula 1? You have to say that is that's definitely, you know, not. So, Brad, to end the meet the panel, I I am going to be a a, a backer for you now at 38. I've I've won the Euro billions. I I have billions at my disposal. Which one of these series would you would you go and enter? So, where uh, would you climb the F- FIA ladder would you join 
Formula Four, Formula Three, or race some sixteen-year-olds, or would you feel that that because when I've watched F two and F three, I'm always frightened. They drive in a much more aggressive way, and I've I've seen them drive through plumes of gravel and and dust smoke at full pelt. Would you put yourself through a Formula Three season? No, absolutely not. I'd, I'd look absolutely ridiculous. I'm, I'm far too physically too old. Um, when I did the Formula 3 testing and Formula 4 testing for motorsport vision, I, it was clear my neck, even after a few laps, even being in race cars every day instructing, my neck wasn't remotely up to it. I would have needed to go to the gym a lot. So, yeah, but, you know, you'd try it. But uh, for, for context, Brad, what's your 5K time if you didn't have your Achilles injury at the moment? Uh, nowadays it wouldn't be remotely as good as this but I did do I think I did a 15 minute 45 as the absolute peak and that's when I when I won a park run <laughs> even though it's not a competition <laughs> but I treated it as a competition yeah, okay no no Brad is extremely extremely fit so he's talking about very specific race car things Brad thank you very much uh, thanks for being candid I think I could have talked to you for for an hour uh, about the race car experience because it's just it's just so unseen the struggles of that that very brutal drive up the F1 ladder. And I think it's no coincidence that we're now seeing more and more billionaires in F1 rather than incredibly wealthy people. And and I don't think I don't think that's gonna change. Especially like the more popular F1 gets, the more uh, you know rich families are gonna push their kids t- towards that. And so Brad, you are forever a race driver street rat but you are our street rat. Go and follow Brad at Brad Philpot on Twitter. Follow his YouTube channel, which is now called at Brad... Just Brad Philpot. Not... Yeah, just if you just search for Brad Philpot on is, YouTube. Is, is the YouTube channel still Brad Dude 2K? I don't think... I think, I, think I managed to change that quite you? a while. Oh, okay. Maybe it still comes up if you type that, but yeah, at Bradley Philpot on Twitter, Brad Philpot on YouTube, and theracecoach.com. If you... Click the links in the show notes below. You will not regret uh, hiring Brad as your sim coach. You can follow Matt as well if you want, but that's less important. Why? Fo- following me is more important. I'm the best one at Spanners Ready. And go and check out if you are a Spanish speaker, please. I would love your feedback on the pilot episode of Mist Apex Espanol. Until we see you next, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Mist Apex Podcast. <laughs>
around a racetrack at a missed apex event and i really i was in there i was in the wars i felt like john snow with pulling his sword out with the cavalry charge i came off track and brad said oh i see you've got no racecraft at all <laughs> and that I was, think uh, you're much better now. I think yeah, I think you've was, learned so much from the sim racing that was and the good. Cards That was a good seven or eight years ago. And I have listened. Like Brad, I've do me this favor before I click stop on the episode. Right, I've said you're a brilliant coach and I mean it. Come on, I've been a pretty good student. I like listen to everything you say and apply it. Yeah, you're you're actually a really good example <clears throat> of what the our questioner asked. You know, <laughs> yes. Can you get good after 30? Yeah. You got quite good after 40. Yeah, yeah so. you can get fine. You can get sort of... Yeah. You, you can get to the point where you can enjoy it as a proper hobby. That's why. You, you can yeah. you can look like a professional to a normal person for sure. Um, and and this is it. I think that's probably a good it. aim. This is it now. Any stag do karting. And in fact, a little bit down our karting journey, I organised a, a work event where normally I would sort of just about win it and I won by 40 seconds. And I had yet to kind of realise that I'd stepped up that level. And I was like, oh, all the way home, I was thinking, you're so stupid. If I'd have realised how much I'd progressed, I would have been in the midfield for half that race. And then, like, at literally any point, I could have chosen to go into first place and dramatically won it at the end. At our podcaster event in London, like, you you probably could have won it on your own. Oh, yes, that was against the other podcasts that weren't good and then accused us of cheating. (laughs) Yep. So that I think that shows mm. it. We're not yeah, we're, thanks, we're not going to mention any. Let's not mention uh, that it was the and and uh, and uh, who else was there? They don't matter. Losers, a whole bunch of losers, and they 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 really they accused me of employing. They said, "Oh, you paid for professional drivers to to come along." It's like, no, yeah. I mean, it's the panel. Yeah, just the panel. All right, cool. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 